drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to The Drawing Room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. Children are the future. Well, of course they are. They're going to have to be. Someone's got to take over this mess. And of course, we all want the best for our children. But are our politicians failing them? I recently spoke with the formidable talents of Fiona Stanley about the findings of a UNICEF report on children's well-being, and i got to say it was pretty damning about how Australia's going compared to other countries. But would putting children at the centre of public policy not only improve outcomes of our children and young people, but also help to break those cycles of disadvantage in Australia? Jenny Whalen is the Chief Strategy Officer of the Paul Ramsey Foundation. She's also one of the hosts of the Life's Lottery podcast, which has dedicated uh, an entire season to asking what it would mean to put children at the centre of public policy. And Jenny is my guest tonight here in the drawing room. Welcome to you. Come on in, take a seat. Thanks, Andy. Let's talk about the fact we both have young children and we see the world through that lens ultimately. You'd do anything for your children, like all parents would. But at a political level, are we see, seeing, I suppose, a failure, if you like, to put that same sorts of value on children and the unique experience of childhood? Well, you're right, Andy. We all value our own kids and the kids nearby, uh, the kids who are in our life. We're much less good at valuing them as a whole society. Governments and policy and budgets, they're really clunky when it comes to the sorts of policy interventions and services that most help kids and families. Government's really clumsy in this area. It's the idea that the village is failing. If it takes a village to raise a child, maybe the village is failing a little bit. So who do we have to blame? Who's the head of the village that we need to focus our uh, frustrations on? And is it the lack of understanding or putting into effect the research, which is abundant on the importance of early childhood issues? Well, as you said, we, we spoke to a whole range of experts and to children and young people themselves on Life's Lottery in this latest season about putting kids and young people at the centre. And one of the things that I walked away from that with was this strange sense of impatient optimism. So I'm not sure I'd quite go as far as failing kids, but gee, we have a long way to go. It could be so much better. So that's everything from the kind of accountability that comes through our political classes. Uh, it's also about how we join up our everyday, day-to-day relationships with kids in our communities and those really big macro policy levers that make the difference, like childcare and its affordability and access, like schools and education, uh, formal education, like health. Typically, we slice and dice these into different domains of government policy. Well, is this the opportunity where we can bash the federated model? Because I'm always up for bashing it a little bit. Because clearly, as you said, education, state, health, often state, uh, a childcare, a mix of both. There is no one ownership, if you like, about children's issues in a policy sense, is there? That's it. It's been a great vehicle for buck passing over the years on this, as in so many different policy issues. I think the last two years, though, have changed the game slightly in the way that we have created previously unimaginable policy outcomes during the COVID pandemic. So we've done things like make childcare universally free for a short period of time. Overnight, we doubled 
job seeker unemployment benefits. We took what was a decade-long reform to get to telehealth and did it in about two weeks. So the sort of um, creativity that's come out of the COVID pandemic, interestingly, I think has broken into our patients for buck passing because of the dysfunction of federation. We're looking to our state governments and our federal government to just get on with it. And we're starting to see that even as we sit today, certainly in New South Wales, there seems to be a real progressive push by uh, liberal moderate governments when it comes to things like funding childcare, like this ex- idea about an extra year of childcare in that uh, early early childhood uh, phase. Where What's the coalface here in terms of the, the thinking? What are the progressive ideas which are starting to permeate the system uh, from other jurisdictions or from within Australia that we sort of need to start taking seriously? It's a genuine bright spot. And I think it took a bunch of people by surprise. So we've known the evidence for a really long time about the benefits that come from investing early in a child's life, in early childhood education at a high quality. We've known for a long time um, the payoffs, not just in them being ready for school and doing well in education, but their payoffs in health, their payoffs economically uh, in getting a job and higher incomes later in life. And more tax, more tax for the for a government and pe- maybe even keeping them out of jail. I mean, th- these, these things are very well established in links, aren't they? That's it. And we don't have to choose. It's not an either or anymore between economic productivity or uh, high quality Uh, social services for young kids. One leads to the other, but we've known this for ages. So what we've seen in the last couple of weeks in the announcements from the New South Wales government and the Victorian government in concert at the same time as there's complementary policy settings at the federal level, uh, we haven't seen that kind of window open for quite a long time. And it's an interesting question of why now, when we've known this for a decade or two, the, the evidence has been emerging from neuroscience about the brain building uh, in those early years. The economic payoffs have been clear from a bunch of longitudinal studies out of the US, but the evidence hasn't been enough to persuade us to change. Something's happening in 2022. Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it, to watch and to ha- for it to happen in our lifetimes, hopefully our children's <laughs> lifetimes. When we're talking about breaking the cycle of disadvantage and intergenerational disadvantage that clearly exists in Australia, how essential is it that we start with children? We're putting programs and strategies in place to ensure that every child can thrive, but it is that decoupling of those chains that starts at the first link, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Look, we can look to the evidence in the research or we can also look to common sense to say that the earlier we can provide some of the opportunities to break that cycle of disadvantage, to cut into the experiences that uh, too many Australians have, um, the earlier in life we can do that, the better the chance across lives intergenerationally. We can treat symptoms later in life, uh, but it's in the earliest stages of life that uh, people are able to be to reset themselves on a different pathway. We spoke about the lack of one sort of policy home or home base, if you like, for this, but we do have children's commissioners. And if we are going to put children and young people at the centre of public policy, do we need a federal minister for children? Has has anyone floated that at the federal level? Yeah, it's certainly what the National Children's Commissioner, Anne Hollands, has been advocating for. Recently, we had Anne on the Life's Lottery podcast and she made the case there, as indeed she has on this station and elsewhere, about the need for that ministerial 
level of focus to drive the coordination and the integration of service areas and to sheet home the responsibility to someone. We also heard it when we spoke to the former South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall um, about the significance of political leadership in taking an area like early childhood from evidence into action. Um, It's interesting to note in the Albanese cabinet, we have a Minister for Early Childhood Education and Youth in Anne Alley. uh, And I think those sorts of steps are um, unnecessary. They're not often sufficient to drive that kind of political change and reform, but I think it's a pretty big signal in that direction. Because in one argument, you could say that it might further entrench that uh, sort of federalised, fractionalised sort of environment. You still have... Uh, at the state level, uh, health ministers responsible for outcomes of children's health. So that takes a lot of bravery and leadership that perhaps we may not have in this country. Yeah. And look, it's one of the frustrations that you hear most commonly about the barriers uh, to helping children and young people really achieve their potential and really thrive is the way that we slice and dice them into different policy domains. Now, to some extent, that's inevitable. To some extent, we do need the specialisation in different silos of public authority and accountability. We do need a health department. We do need an education department. But we also need a different ethic that says just because I'm in the education department, it doesn't mean that my purview starts and ends with what happens inside the school gate. We do need a different kind of ethic among policymakers and among our politicians to say it's just not good enough to to blame the others over the fence, to throw the blame back up to the federal level if you're at the state or vice versa. It's time actually to roll some sleeves up and get things done. So if there was some sort of status quo change, the sorts of big ideas we're talking about here, that wouldn't affect today's teenagers. And today's teenagers, particularly in vulnerable communities, are overrepresented in terms of rates of incarceration, for example. So not only do we need to sort of break this chain at the first link, but we also have to think about further down the chain and think about things like crime and justice and raising the age. I mean, these things would have an immediate impact on today's young people, would they not? Yeah, and so to uh, go even further and look at the uh, the services available to support parents, which have an immediate impact on their children. You know, there's real understanding that those first thousand days in life are so critical, are so important. But so too are the next thousand days and so too are the next thousand days and so too are the next thousand days after that. So we shouldn't look just to early childhood um, and away from the teenage years or those other crucial points of transition from perhaps school into work and early adulthood. There are opportunities all the way through on those transition points. The intergenerational effects of these uh, often have their kind of greatest bang for the buck where you can connect education and criminal justice and health so that you've got all of those policy levers pulling together. Well, that does speak to a centralised policy you know, ownership, if, if you like, doesn't it? Or it speaks to a decentralised one. So one of the other um, trends that we've seen over recent years is the place-based approach to policy, where you're seeing services being integrated at a local level, at a place-based level, and that's in particular areas that are experiencing most acute disadvantage. It's often begun and come out of a focus on the youngest children, but that is a really strong agenda, particularly given Australia's unique geography uh, of disadvantage and poverty the potential to be putting 
control and agency and leadership for some of these integrated services back in the hands of communities themselves um, has enormous potential. It's really hard to do at scale. And so far, we've really seen it at an ad hoc level in select communities. Well, I think it's what, 10 uh, Our Place projects rolled out across different parts of Australia, mostly in Western Australia, I believe. Our Place is all in Victoria. Victoria. So that's okay. a that's a really interesting initiative um, that brings together a range of backers that started uh, with a model to put services uh, in a local primary school, recognising that schools are really the only institution we want our kids every day and that schools can then offer a platform for the rest of the family to access services as well. It's yes, a contact point, time. isn't it, for the whole community? Well, this is the village, exactly right. isn't it? You're trying to recreate a little village where you've got all of those services that we traditionally would expect out of a village. That's exactly right. Trust and relationships really important in there. And so the local dynamic of that is crucial. What we have to be careful of, though, is not just dumping a whole bunch of new burden and responsibility on schools, which are already pretty overstretched. So it does need a, a different conception of uh, of schools as larger platforms. We certainly heard that, for instance, from Professor Sharon Goldfeld, who joined us in, in Life's Lottery, imagining what schools of the future could be if they could integrate conventional, traditional education alongside health and wellbeing, alongside family supports, alongside skills and training, not just for older kids, but for parents too. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Jenny Whalen is my guest in the drawing room. We're talking about what it would mean for Australia if we were to put children at the forefront of public policy. And in your podcast, Life's Lottery, you dedicated a whole season to asking this question. But I'm curious about why is it the frustration that there is this research on the shelf, but simply no policy, you know, to, to sort of carry it through? So sometimes in policy world, uh, you know you're onto something when people start asking the question, haven't we done this already? Why don't we already put children at the forefront of policy? Why don't we already put children at the centre of budgets? And I guess that was the motivating question for us in Life's Lottery in the season backing kids to say, if we don't, what would it take? And where can we look around Australia and around the world for examples where that might be happening? So... And so what jurisdictions can we learn from? We always hear, especially when we talk about social policy, we hear about the Scandinavian countries. Uh, we hear about the cost of those policies as well. So what are the jurisdictions that Australia could learn from here? They're big and small. So one of the things uh, that comes through in these policy discussions pretty regularly is that you need a, an environment, a jurisdiction that's both large enough to affect change at scale, but small enough to do it in one sweeping reform. Now, we've already spoken a bit about some of the dysfunction between in a federated system between the federal and the state level. Um, we certainly often find ourselves looking to New Zealand and some of the reforms there in children and family policies. But you can also learn from um, some of the programs that have been rolled out at a community level. And again, if I think about that early childhood area, that's it's really significant in some of the, uh, the programs and services that have been studied by everyone, including the Nobel laureate James Heckman, showing just how significant is the return on investment of putting funds, attention and policy into the early years for the health of a whole society. So it does ask us to think differently about cost benefit and cost effectiveness. But I think we're seeing some of that start to take root here in Australia. Some of that UNICEF report really went to environmental issues, which you 
ordinarily wouldn't always consider, but it certainly seems that there is a rising kind of concern about putting climate change into the mix here. How many jurisdictions truly do that and do it well? Look, I don't think we're seeing nearly enough jurisdictions anywhere in the world doing it well enough for what we know and the science tells us. What we do know, speaking to children and young people here in Australia, is just what a source of anxiety that is for them. And this is uh, a generation of teenagers, not who've just uh, coped with a couple of years of COVID disruption, but bushfires and floods against the much larger background of climate change. And that's how they see their future. Um, and they're very practical concerns too. I mean, this week uh, it got to 40 degrees in France for the first time ever. These are real and immediate uh, public health and public education concerns that aren't five, ten years off down the track. These are today. Yeah, and as our, as one of our guests on Life's Lottery, Kevin Watkins, put it, this is this is one of the greatest uh, burdens that we have bequested the next generation, um, and this is the world our kids are growing up in. They are at the same time hammering down the doors with different approaches, and it's that kind of creativity and possibility creating approach that we need to start embracing. Business as usual isn't going to get us to the complex ways in which we need to tackle climate change at every level. It won't just be a climate change department in public policy that does this. It needs to be in everything that we do. So we have a new government in this country. There's been, a, well, a great start in terms of policy agenda, where whether that's legislative remains to be seen. But in the philanthropic world, which you occupy, what is the feeling about government taking control and responsibility for these things again, rather than outsourcing it to consultants and those consultants outsourced it to other consultants, if you know what I mean. What is the mood, uh, you know, in, in the philanthropic circles about the possibility of government doing what government should do? What we know is that uh, much as we have the the privileged position in philanthropy here in Australia to be able to make some really significant change and catalyse some really, really important initiatives. We are so tiny in comparison to the size and scale of government that if our work isn't joined up with government and isn't pulling or pushing on government to be heading where we need to, our purpose is lost. So we think um, all the time about what is it that philanthropy can provide uh, that doesn't duplicate government, that doesn't do government's work for it, but sometimes does put up the risk capital, that sometimes does generate the kind of evidence and research and data that helps government take the risk on big costly programs in areas that otherwise they might not. Is it the role of philanthropy to pick and choose fashionable causes? I think we'd hope that there is very little fashion in the selection of issues. Instead, it's the great privilege of philanthropy to be able to look long-term, actually, and to outlast some of the necessary short-term focus of electoral cycles in government and, uh, and politics. We can take a really long view. We can look at the decade-long reform. We can look 20 years into the future um, and be patient and wait that out. 
So as your children start to grow and enter into the systems and have the contact with uh, various sort of policies that are either state or federal that we've sort of talked about, what are the changes that you hope to see that will ensure a brighter and safer future for everyone's children, not just our own? I think there's a few things that we would hope to see if the next decade can deliver on some of the promise that we're starting to see now. One is that we would see more evidence informing what we're doing. Evidence isn't enough, but gee, it's a necessary first step. We would also see a future in which we had found ways of overcoming those really dysfunctional silos, whether that's across different policy domains, whether it's between levels of government from state and federal, whether it's across sectors of governments uh, needing to be able to work with non-government sectors, with business, with, uh, with academics and researchers. I think we'll see... Uh, if we get there, a change in dynamics about voice and whose voices are listened to. Um, we heard, for instance, from one of our guests on Life, Life's Lottery about the, the sheer fatigue of being over-consulted without action. Uh, and I think the listening to people's voices without allowing them to hold to account the policymakers and politicians. It's lip service, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's lip service uh, and it breeds uh, resentment and cynicism. And so I think the other thing that I would add in there that we need to see is actually policymakers with a long-term regard for the health of our democracy. And democracy is not often something you you talk about in policy circles. It tends to either be taken for granted or it's something that uh, the ministerial level and the politicians take care of. But actually in thinking about whose voices are at the table um, and what the means of policymaking are doing uh, for the willingness of people to engage and have their voices heard, policymakers are on the front lines of the vibrancy of our democracy. Yeah, you don't often hear that in these sorts of uh, debates, do you? Well, look, it's been fantastic to have you in the drawing room. Uh, your podcast is fantastic too. It really covers off a lot of uh, these sorts of conversations in much more depth. I urge you to check it out. And Jenny Whalen, thanks for being my guest here in the drawing room. Thanks, Andy. She's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Paul Ramsey Foundation and the host of the Life's Lottery podcast. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>